The 2020 vision here is presented first of all by the cry of the heart of a blind man, Bartimaeus, saying, Lord, I want to see. In the physical realm, a lack of physical vision can be compensated to an extent by the development of other senses, touch and hearing and uh, um, sound and, and, and smell. In the spiritual realm, there's no compensation. You either see or you don't see. And to realize that we need fresh vision or sharper vision is a good, good place to be. Say, God, give me vision. And we have a vision. It's not just been plucked out of thin air. We've been seeking God for well over six months on this, presented it throughout the January Vision Week, and that material is available on our media center in, online. And then it goes on to talk about aspects of that vision in the early pages of Revival Times, featuring three major areas of growth. The vision is all about growth. Three major areas, growth in spiritual maturity, growth numerically through multiplication, and growth through influence in the wider society. It takes a community to reach a community. Last Sunday, my message was featuring the first aspect of this spiritual growth. Today, I'm going to talk about growing through multiplication. But I thought I'd turn you to page 9 if you've got it. If not, the same bullet points will appear on the screen. And this is sharing with you the vision that we have for you. And the we is a very big we. It is myself, my primary 12 leaders, all the cell leaders. This is how we are envisioning you and how we are seeing you. If you don't see somebody with the eyes of faith, you'll never see that materialized in their life. And I hope you find it very encouraging. This is how we are have a vision for you, what you can become, and praying into that and envisioning that every day. My challenge to you is, is this how you also see yourself over the next four years of this strategic vision, which will prepare us and propel us into the 2020s, which are going to be awesomely glorious times. First of all, we see you equipped and encouraged to share your faith with others. We see you able to give increasingly confident answers to those who ask about the hope you have in Jesus. We see you touching the lives of those around you through powerful Christian love. We see you with a heart of, for the lost and a powerful prayer life that will help you shake the foundations of our city for God. Bold vision, and there's more where that came from, and uh, that's our creative vision. And as we see you in those terms, we, we, we'll be released to shape and to influence and to be available for you so that this vision can be fulfilled in your life. Now, today's message, as I mentioned earlier, is about the second part of that vision, multiplication, reproducing Christ in others. And this is a numerical growth goal, but it means, of course, to see significant and genuine growth, not just about numbers. Throughout the whole of KTLCC churches, growth in our congregations, growth in our membership, growth in our cell groups, growth cell membership, multiplication of cells. But it does depend on us catching this vitally, vitally important truth. And it's not just about evangelism, it's evangelism and discipleship. 
it's not just about evangelism and discipleship. It's learning how to be fruitful through this principle in every area of your life. And you can see how this principle, which I'm supremely applying to evangelism and mission and discipleship, is also how you live your life anyway and in every aspect of your life. And here's the take-home thought. Your life is a seed destined to bear fruit. Let that thing sink in for a little while. Your life is a seed destined for a purpose, and the purpose is to bear fruit. Now, we're going to see that in order for that seed to bear fruit, it must die. Okay, but we've just been singing about, we believe in resurrection. How many people love resurrection? We believe in resurrection. But before resurrection, there has to come something else, crucifixion. Okay, it's part of the large print. It's not part of the small print. But it's the only way to experience life. By dying, we gain. Your seed is a, your life is a seed that has to fall into the ground and die and then bear fruit. It's active, it's positive. Now I'm going to turn you to a prolonged reading of scripture this morning from Philippians chapter 1. Now, as I read it, know this, that I'm going to, in a moment, select three of the many principles here, which will show you how you can bear fruit, how you can activate this principle of dying and rising and reproducing and bearing much fruit. What are the principles that are governing that? And I'll read it, then we'll come to the ones that I I selected. Verse 12, Philippians chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, it means that fruit, it means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. 
Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Marketing, the propagation of a product, the dissemination of that product throughout the full range of your stated market and consumer group of people, very, very important. And I dipped into some article this week which uh, invites different leading experts in the business world to share their marketing secrets. Some of it's quite interesting. One response came in as, here's my marketing advice. Make promises and keep them. So obvious become a secret. Another one wrote in and said, attracting is the new selling. It is the least visible and least examined principle behind many companies today that are growing quickly through word of mouth. And now this one's particularly interesting because we are an assembly of God's people. And uh, it says this, Forget what your mama or your preacher taught you. How about that as a, a kickoff for a marketing strategy? Forget what your mama or your preacher taught you. The golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself, does not work for developing marketing strategy. Your customers do not want to be treated as you want to be treated. They want to be treated as they want to be treated. And so it says, here's the new golden rule for marketers. Do unto customers as they would like to be treated. Okay, well, we can reflect on how much of that is valuable. I find interesting the spreading through word of mouth, and often today that is social media. And I've even opened my, I did my first hashtag thing today, absolutely amazing. Remind me to come on, uh, come back and tell you about that, and you, you can join me in that. Because this is how we communicate today word of mouth and, and, and social media. Many, many ways of communicating our faith. But, you know, when we think about marketing, should we really be taking our decisions, making our decisions based on what is current marketing practice out there in the world? Or should we turn to Jesus and put this question to him? It'll be rephrased, but here's the question to him. Jesus, what's your marketing strategy? Well, he wouldn't quite put it like that, but he certainly would say this. The gospel spreads when we sow our lives as gospel seeds. But a seed to bear fruit must be sown. I know that because Jesus actually said this, John 12, 24 to 25, say, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And 
you know, really right there is the nub of my message today. Let's try to take hold of the words of Jesus and practice them. So evangelism is not just talking about it. It's not even just praying about it, though talking and praying about it are very important things. It comes by doing it, doing it. I like the idea of seed, not just because of the dying and rising fruitfulness, but the very fact that we are to sow seeds in other people's lives. It doesn't mean to say that you can take somebody from conception to delivery in a five-minute discussion. It happens on the street when ripe fruit comes along, falling off the branches, ready for us to pick them. But most of the evangelism that you will be doing, keep going on the streets, guys, that's fantastic. One in two serious conversations about Jesus on the street leads to a commitment to Christ. But the work that we are doing readily, day by day, is, is more on friendship evangelism, building relationships, living for Christ, and being ready to give answers to questions, and living the kind of life that asks, causes people to ask questions, and say, you know, you got something, what is it? But it's about sowing seed. Every single one of us can go out this week with a bunch of seed and sow it in one way or another. Then Jesus goes on to show that this principle applies right across the whole of the Christian life. It applies to you in every area of your life, and especially, as I'm highlighting today, when you want to reproduce and multiply new disciples. Verse 25 says, whoever loves his life loses it. Meaning if you love it, you keep it to yourself. What you sow won't be Christ, it'll be you. If you sow you into somebody else, you're just going to get the you. And if it's not the new you, it won't be the true you. If it's the old you, it'll be bad fruit. Can I have an amen? amen. All right. You can play that back and listen again. Anyway, whoever hates his life, meaning not, not self-hatred, but whoever hates his life, says, you know what? That old me isn't the true me. That's not who I want to be. That's not the Jesus the, the, the person Jesus created. It's not the person Jesus is recreating in me. I'm going to lay hold of my new life, let go of the old life, that's like a dying, lay hold of the new life, sow that seed, and I will bear fruit of righteousness in my own life. And it says, if you do that in this world, you will keep it for eternal life. So the most effective and fruitful disciples are those who sow their lives into others by dying to self, and this is the passion that drives the propagation of our faith, person to person. Christ formed in us that spiritual maturity, and then Christ reproduced through us that multiplication. And it is a love issue. It's a love issue. If we truly love people, we will share Christ with them. And if we love them even more than that, we all share Christ in a way that is meaningful to them, not just shove tracts in their lunchboxes. And it's all about the glory of God. Jesus very famously said, by this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and, and if your fruit will remain and so on. And that, that proves and demonstrates you are my disciples. One of the greatest demonstrations of discipleship is multiplying your life through others. No Christian should go many days without considering this. Every day we should consider it. And at the end of a year, we should look back and say, I've impacted these people's lives to the glory of God. And some of them will accept Christ. It's a guarantee because 
there is this growth dynamic, reproductive ability that God has made us as fruit-bearing seed. And when that fruit comes from the seed, the fruit itself carries fresh seed. And that's how, that's Jesus' marketing program, put it that way. So let's look at some principles. The first principle that I notice, I want to share with you is this. Become a great commission Christian. Now that's not my phrase. It's the phrase of a very well-known missions organization that seeks to encourage every believer to realize that the commission of Jesus for the whole church is God's call upon their lives personally. So we don't just believe in Jesus and go to church on Sunday. We see that everything we do is like sowing. Every action, you're sowing something. Did you know that? Every action, you're sowing something. And that action will reap something. And it's a principle that applies everywhere. We are called to sow our lives into our family. Maybe your family or those you want to win to Jesus. But either way, that's what we do. We invest ourselves in other people. That's who we are. That's what we do. That is the kingdom of God. Our friends, our neighbors, our, our, our work colleagues, and anybody that we contact, you sow a seed when you smile for Jesus. It sounds simplistic and trite, but if it's coming genuinely from your heart and you actually smile, you look around you, look around you, not, not, not here, everybody's happy here today, but look around you out there, you discover that the world is a burdensome place. And, you know, I'm, I'm sounding a little bit like Miss Serendipity, but, uh, you know, you can bring a ray of sunshine. And it's amazing the difference that makes. If you sow a negative word, it produces fruit all around you. But if you sow that positive, genuine love for Jesus because you are genuinely satisfied with Jesus, genuinely and generally, I suppose, genuinely satisfied in Jesus, and also you know that you, you have something, you're carrying a secret, you're carrying life, you're carrying the reason for hope. And it's not about, it, you talk about bridge building. A lot of talk about bridge building this last week. Build bridges, not walls. And some of the people are shouting, are building the biggest walls forever. Bridge building is only possible through the reconciling power of Jesus Christ, where we understand one another, love one another, appreciate one another, but still able to disagree with one another, to encourage one another, to move forward. Amen and amen. We have the answer in every particular area. So what does it mean to become a great commission Christian? Paul is our example. I don't think I need to demonstrate that Paul was a great commission Christian. He was out everywhere preaching the gospel wherever he could, planting churches. He was nothing if he was not engaged in the master's business. But what of his great commission mentality is reflected in these words we've read? I'll put it to you this way. Like Paul... Learn to adopt a view, a way of looking at your life in which every decision is determined by the gospel outcome or potential. And every circumstance is evaluated by the very same principle. What of this circumstance can I use for the glory of God and the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ? You noticed Paul is writing from prison. It would have HMM, whatever, on the top of the letter as he, as, it has, as, as he writes it. And the story of Paul's imprisonment is very interesting. Historically, it goes back to the time when Paul made his way to Jerusalem in the fulfillment of a vow, a Nazarite vow, and he was to 
shave his head and make offerings in the temple. Don't forget Paul was a Jew, was very happy that people continued with Jewish traditions and customs. They were just not to be imposed upon uh, Gentiles, especially circumcision. And he comes to Jerusalem. The city is full with myriads and myriads of people who are loving Jesus and every one of them continuing with their Jewish customs and traditions and it was healthy and wonderful. But they said, Paul, we got some doubts about you. There are people here who don't like what you're doing, hobnobbing and fraternizing and evangelizing those Gentiles. So watch yourself. Be very careful what you do. And Paul, that advice was good advice because Paul got into big trouble. He had somebody with him, some Gentiles with him. Timothy was even circumcised at this particular point. But they mistakenly thought that Paul had led some Gentiles into the no-go area, which was for Jews only. It wasn't about racism. It was to do with the fact that God's covenant was, first of all, with the Jews. And the Old Testament excluded Gentiles from the, the, the holy places in the temple. And there was a barrier erected. Gentiles could come so far. It was to be a house of prayer for all nations. But at this particular point, the separation between Jew and Gentile had not been dealt with. Jesus dealt with that at the cross. And there was, you can check it up on the internet, there was, and exists today, a plaque, uh, an engraving, which said something like this. This is the court of Israel. No Gentile is allowed to go beyond this point, And anybody who does so will have himself to blame for his own ensuing death. It was a capital offense, which even the Romans allowed the Jews to extract because it was deemed to be a religious matter out of respect for their religious traditions. They didn't have powers all over the uh, Roman society, but it, there they did. So when they mistakenly thought that Paul had taken people who were Gentiles into this place, the, the, they, they were enraged. And in fact, the Roman soldiers had to rescue Paul from being torn apart by the crowd. And as a result of that, he was arrested. They thought it was all about um, Paul was some kind of rabble rouser and eventually and, and Paul appeals to his Roman citizenship he goes to prison they tried to kill him so they take him transfer him to another prison 200 miles away in Caesarea two years there he comes out of prison some people think he went back into prison for two years out of his three-year stay in Ephesus so you know um, Paul never had to worry about accommodation to check out the local prison and then he was uh, uh, they suggest too that this uh, particular situation brought him to trial in, in Rome, and this is when he's writing now his prison letters, and scholars believe that Paul actually was exonerated at that trial and spent two more years ministering until finally, probably on another charge, he was rearrested and lost his life in prison under the rule of Nero, the Roman Empire, emperor hostile to Christians in AD 64. So all that's very, very interesting. Now then, here's the point. Paul is in prison. Now anybody who's in prison, now his prison would have been kind of open. He had to hire his own house, had to hire his own prison. And then he had to hire soldiers who were assigned to guard him and keep him under house arrest. So the tradition would be that the soldier would be chained to Paul. And I wonder who was the real prisoner. I mean, they would get me the heaven out of here. I'm sick of hearing this man. So Paul evangelized every soldier, and, uh, and, and, and then many people became Christians, and as a result of that, 
This message was heard right the way through the imperial guardhouse, even into the palace, and depending on how you translate this word praetorium, it might even be Caesar's palace himself, uh, itself. So Paul was suddenly realizing God had a plan. Put me in prison. Maybe they thought they would shut me up. The devil got me here to shut me up, but now the devil is mad and wants to give me the key to get out of here because I'm doing more damage for the gospel's sake than when I was before. So learn this. This is what I want you to learn from me. Paul is saying, I look at my circumstance and discern what in this circumstance is to my advantage when I'm passionate about the gospel. Many people have very desperate circumstances. And circumstances we would not choose for ourselves. And yet by those circumstances which feel like a kind of prison, and I know for Brenda, one of our former staff members who passed away succumbing to cancer after a long but positive battle against that illness, I know for her it was a prison. She said, I want out of this. Jesus is going to heal me. And she sat me down one day and said, Colin, Jesus is going to heal me. But if he doesn't heal me, then you're going to have to come and raise me from the dead. You promise? I said, I promise. <laughs> okay. Now, my main part of the story, I'll tell you the outcome of that in a moment. But main point of telling you the story was that it was terribly, terribly painful and tragic. And yet, Brenda turned it right round. And, and she, she outlived every medical prognosis. Finally succumbing, but glorious testimony everywhere she went. Every hospital appointment, every time in hospital, she was so positive, she was shining for Jesus. And now there are people in the kingdom of God who would not have been in the kingdom of God if it weren't for her. She did pass away. Amanda was there. I was absent. And I said, what about my promise? So I said, put Brenda on speakphone, please. Put her on speakphone. I spoke very loud because, you know, if you shout, it's more likely to happen, isn't it? <laughs> Brenda, come back! Then I paused and said, but if you'd rather stay with Jesus. I can't analyze that. I simply say that I know this. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. I know this, as Paul said, to depart is better, but we just don't have a morbid desire to get out of here. Our life has to count here. So that's how Paul was thinking about it. And uh, so this mentality will help you see or discern the gospel advantage, even in the most negative circumstances. It'll also help you decide in some decision-making process in your life as to where best to be. And in general, here's the guideline. I want to be in the most effective position in the world, in society, wherever, so I can do the most damage to Satan's kingdom and do the most good for Jesus. Sometimes that is not as it appears on paper. So you need a discernment beyond the obvious. Because it could be that being guided by the Spirit, you'll be in a place which might not be your first choice in terms of career move, but... Who knows why God has put you there? Now, maybe that's you today. Maybe you're thinking, do you know what? I, I wanted this university course. I'm on another one. Or, you know, I wanted that job, but somebody else got it, and I've got this job, which was second choice for me. There's no such thing as second choice with God. 
where you are, there is a reason. There is a reason. If the Holy Spirit's stirring you up to change, that's fine, to go somewhere else, but let it be the Holy Spirit. Now, another reason I know, and this really strikes home to me as uh, one of these official minister types, um, uh, we, we often complain about complainers. Uh, you get a bunch of ministers together, and if you're not careful, you've got the biggest bunch of moaning minis ever. And here's the kind of thing, oh, hard, poor me, isn't the ministry hard? I've had six people leave the church, and, 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 and they all criticize me, and it's all terrible, and they hate me, and it's horrible, I, you know, with friends like these who need enemies. Now, Paul could have just done just that. Well, however, however else it's working out, emotionally, he must have felt restricted, constrained, and needed God's help. He calls people to pray for him. I need your help. Pray, please pray for me. Don't just give me physical aid, but pray for me. And uh, he, he noticed something. One thing he had every right to rejoice in. The other thing he had every right to complain about. But he rejoices and rejoices again. First thing to rejoice about, said, you know what? What's actually happened? People have been so sympathetic to, to, to my case and my cause, and they see that I'm, you know, not able to do all my missionary travels as before. So you know what? We will rise up. We will rise up and do the job. What an amazing transformation. That's the transformation that needs to take place in almost every church community everywhere on God's earth today. Because here's how it usually works. Well, we have a ministry, meaning certain people who stand on the platform. At the moment, you're sitting watching me, and I'm doing all the stuff. And so you think, that's it. He's paid to do it. By the way, I'm not paid to do it. But he's paid to do it. You couldn't pay me to do what I do. Uh, you do pay me, but you pay God, and God pays me. Anyway, never mind about that. All right. So you're paid to do a job. Get on and do it. And we'll, we'll pray for you. We'll tithe and occasionally even double tithe, but you do it and let us get on with our lives. That's not the deal, brothers and sisters. The Great Commission is in your hands. You are seeds of life to be sown in the lives of other people to bring fruit and multiplication of many, many, many disciples. Can I have an amen in this house today? Right, okay. So that was happening and Paul was happy. They've been emboldened, they've overcome their fear. Fear is a very important thing. It's what prevents us from talking about Jesus. You notice that a lot of fear is mentioned in the political realms. Brexit, Donald Trump and all the rest of it. And We're all so afraid. And now they're trying to fight fear with fear. You don't fight fear with fear. You fight fear with faith. Amen. Amen. We rise up with faith and get bold and get, get a bit of courage. Now there's another group of people who are also seeing Paul's imprisonment as an advantage to them. They said, wow, Paul, you know, he got, hasn't got enough faith. He's stuck there in prison. Whatever other criticism, he should have been wiser and he's finished, he's over. Now we can take over. Um, and, and they were preaching Christ out of envy, out of rivalry, false motives. And they, were th they thought they could actually add to Paul's distress. We'll make it worse for him. We'll take over. And now we're in the spotlight. Thank God we got rid of that horrible Paul. And now we are the big movers and shakers in first century Christianity. Now Paul could have looked at that and said, fancy that. How unfair. How unjust. After all I've done for them, this is how they treat me. He didn't. He realized they were preaching from false motives. But he also rejoiced in the fact that Christ was being preached anyway. 
So it's even a way of looking at those who oppose you and those who disagree with you and those who are trying to restrict you. It's a way of looking at everything. Become a great commission Christian. And at the heart of that, principle all the way through, which I'm talking about today, is that your life is a seed with tremendous growth potential, but that seed has to fall in the ground and die in order to bear fruit. One of the early church theologians said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, meaning that every time there was persecution to the point of death, God always turned that situation around and the churches multiplied all the more. That's not the full story of persecution, but I know it to be true with respect to Elam's history. The story I'm about to say, I'm not going to go as much detail as the, in the 9 o'clock service, it was too painful, but I'll, I'll, I'll say some things. Elam missionaries who died in former, uh, former Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, June 23rd, 1978, nearly 40 years ago. We did not know that our own Wendy White would be one of those missionaries who were so brutally and cruelly massacred in their political situation during the fight for independence. She wasn't born in London. She worked in London. She was from Northern Ireland. And some of those beautiful, beautiful people. And uh, I, I really want you to get this story and I think the best way of doing it is, is, is getting our Elam Centenary uh, DVD. tells the Elam story. 100 years of the Elam Pentecostal Church describes that period as Elam's darkest hour. But uh, the man who went out after the massacres, after the tragedy, was mentioned even in the Houses of Parliament. And uh, it was very, very, it was world news at the time. To go and pick up the pieces of, of that disaster, that man speaks on this. DVD and, and shares it. It's a very, very moving, moving time. But I want to tell you about one of those people who was martyred alongside the children and families. A lady called Mary Fisher. And a wonderful lady. And uh, when the then general superintendent went over to help sort out the situation, looking through her belongings, found an old, old cassette. You know the old cassettes? The <coughs> ones. And uh, she'd been playing her guitar and singing to Jesus, just singing into the, into the tape. And the song was, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Amazing. She didn't know what was to happen to her, probably. And beyond that, the stories come up, eyewitness accounts of the missionaries who were being killed, were praying for those who were killing them. Forgive them, forgive them, forgive them. Those, that prayer was answered. And in one case in particular, Peter Griffiths, who was the head of the mission out there, later on met an interview with a young man who was in Bible college, who'd recently come to Christ, training for the ministry, was one of the people who was involved in the massacre, one of the perpetrators. And those words, forgive them, forgive them, haunted him till he yielded to Christ. The prayer of the missionaries, don't worry, they can kill the body, but they can't kill the soul. That manner in which they accepted that ultimate of sacrifices became 
remarkable seed for the growth of the church. Now, I know that's extremely dramatic and traumatic. But the truth is, we do not escape death. There's no escape from this. Jesus to take up your cross and die daily. So even when we live, we die. Paul said, if I die, go to be with Christ, that's marvelous. But if I stay, I'm going to sow, keep on sowing into your lives. I'm going to sow the seed of my life into the soil of the gospel that it might bring forth fruit through the multiplication of many, many disciples. And all of this, all of this brings me to my next point. First point is become a great commissioned Christian. Second point is this. Live in a way that's consistent with the message you carry. Take a look at verse 27 of Philippians 1. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Any time I read the word worthy in the Bible, I get a bit worried. I get a bit tense. Because if I read it this way, I've got to prove myself worthy of Jesus. I, 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 it's not about my worth. It's about his worth. So this is about, isn't about you thinking, I've got to live up to a certain standard because he's done so much for me, and if not, I'm just proving myself unworthy, and I've somehow got to be worthy. No, 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 no. Our unworthiness is lost in the infinite ocean of the worthiness of Jesus Christ. It's not about trying to make yourself worthy. The better word, I think, is consistent. We have a message which we carry, and there will be, presumably till the day we die, a gap between who we are in Christ and, and what we've attained of that revelation in our lives. And provided we are following Christ wholeheartedly and openly, my non-Christian friends they're more discerning than my Christian friends. They, they see my weaknesses and faults in the first five seconds, and they tell me about them. And they soon get to know that I'm not preaching myself anyway. I'm preaching Christ. And if I'm, if I'm saying anything about myself, is yes, I have a long way to go, but I'm headed in that right direction. Will you join me? And we can be disciples together. So it's not about being perfect, but it's about having a conscience about living out the gospel in our own lives. And this is, again, about dying and rising. Let me put it to you this way. Uh, when you sow your life into somebody else's life, whose life are you sowing? Not yours. It's Christ's life. Put it, put it this way. You have the old self, the old you. The old you is gone forever. You have the new you. The new you is the true you. The you he had in mind when he made you in the beginning and now is recreating in you. That's the you that you sow. It's that spiritual aspect. You sow that. Don't sow your opinions. Don't sow your faults. Don't sow. You sow Christ. And when you start sowing Christ, two things happen. First of all, they see your good works. They see your faith in action. And they say, wow, that faith is real. Secondly, they sense the presence of Jesus. When you're walking in the spirit, they sense the presence of Jesus. It's not about lecturing them, certainly not about condemning them or about judging them, but it's about showing them Jesus. And when they see Jesus, there is an attraction. 
which is better than any form of marketing attraction, as was said earlier in my sheet of paper that I've just found again. Attracting is the new selling. And what is attractive? Who is attractive? Holy Spirit draws people to Jesus. So live in a, a, a way that is consistent with the message you carry. Now, I got this wrong when I was first a Christian, a new Christian. I thought it was about never letting them see anything wrong at all. I think I lasted three weeks. Was it three days? Might have just been three minutes. And, you know, from the moment when they saw that I was just a new believer, certainly not much time for massive fruit to develop, they realized that it was not about me, it was about Jesus. From that moment onwards, <laughs> they began to listen because they got the message right. So remember, the new you is the true you. And you can always say, make that very clear to people. So number one, become a great commissioned Christian. Number two, live in a way that's consistent with the message you carry. That's to do with spiritual fruitfulness. That's to do with maturity. We recovered a lot of that last week. Now, my final point is this. Expect opposition, but respond to it in the right way. And the way you respond to opposition is defending Christ and the gospel. Don't ever defend yourself. Don't become defensive. Verses 28 to 30. Paul's continuing and says, don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. I, I am so glad that the Bible is upfront with the price that we pay to be good witnesses for Jesus. It's not something, come to Jesus, all your problems will go away, you'll be a happy person, you know, for the rest of your life, no problems, and then when the problems come, say, oh, well, didn't we tell you about that? Well, actually, you know, well, 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 I've got more problems now that I'm a Christian than before. Yeah, yeah, well, maybe we should have mentioned that, but anyway, now you love Jesus anyway. The Bible's upfront. He's granted to you to believe in him, but also with that comes some sense of suffering and opposition. Jesus said, they hated me without a cause. They're sure going to hate you. And, uh, and that doesn't mean to say you walk away with a persecution complex. And when the garbage people don't uh, del deliver or pick up the garbage when they should, you walk around telling everybody the persecution has come, the persecution has come. <laughs> they failed to deliver my garbage or get rid of my garbage. No, but, but the other side of this is the pe some people will believe, many will believe, because you're destined for fruitfulness. But we do have to accept that we're going to do that in, a, uh, in an environment which, by definition, is hostile to the message and the light of the gospel. We live in an age of darkness, and, and there's going to be that. But the point is, is that we can overcome, because light is stronger than darkness. And, and I don't know whether we take courage from this, you, you judge for yourself, but Paul says, you know, if they oppose you, not because you've been offensive or obnoxious, but if they oppose you for the sake of Christ, it is a sure sign that they're on the wrong path and headed towards destruction. And it's a sure sign that you're on the opposite path, heading in the other way, the right way.
Do you take comfort from that? Maybe not. Maybe what we should be saying is, wow, that they're rejecting something or hostile to something and the consequences are so painful that I will understand and I will persevere. I will not take it personally. I will take whatever, I'll absorb whatever hate comes my way because I love them enough to see them through to the kingdom of God. What do you think about that? So it is a clear fact. It's been granted to us not only to believe but also to suffer and we can do it with joy. We can do it with joy. Some of these uh, words which Paul speaks which seem so highly elevated. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If we really believed that and invested our lives in accordance with that principle, we would be very different. So I encourage you to revisit this, rediscover this, because it is the secret of fruitfulness in evangelism, disciple making, and in every other part of your life. If I was to speak and interview a mother here today and say, what, what, what's your attitude towards your children? Deep, deep attitude as a mother. Now, parents fail us, so my illustration here may not be totally applicable generally or everywhere, but there's enough to know that genuine parental love, genuine motherly love is so deep. Mothers will do anything. They'll go without anything just to see their kids get on in life. And it's sacrificial. They invest their lives in their children. Parents, that's, that's ideal parenting. And, and, and anyway, all of us, if we care about people, and it's all about people, we invest our lives in them. Learn to do this. I'm sure you're doing it already, but understand it's a kingdom principle. Invest your life in your friends. Invest your life in your colleagues. Invest your life in all of the people that God leads you to be with because you are sowing seed and that seed will bear fruit. And the fruitfulness is not just by saying, oh, you know, at the end of 2020s, I, 2020, I have a bigger, the biggest cell in the entire history of, of Christendom. It's not about that. It's about the fact that as you sow your life in, into what you do in every way, in the spirit of Christ, doing everything for the glory of God, that's where you will bear fruit in every respect. You know about this sowing and reaping financially. Hardly a service goes by without us reminding you what you're sowing. It's seed sowing. You're going to reap a harvest. But it's true in every area of your life. Give yourself wholeheartedly to your vocation. Give yourself wholeheartedly to, your, to the call of God upon your life. So sacrificially, so joyfully, because, you know, there is a saying that says, if you go uh, sowing with tears, you come back reaping with rejoicing. But you can even sow with joy. Uh, a farmer who is sowing seed at the appropriate time isn't going, oh, I'm sowing all the seed. I can hear the seed. I don't give you the seed away. They're saying, get that in the ground. Get that in the ground. Get it down. Let it die. Let it die. Because when it dies, it's going to grow. And when harvest time comes, I'll be so glad that I sowed my seed. And it's about joy. I mean, there's a reason why he spoke about sowing 
with tears. There are times when we feel there's no response and it's really difficult and painful. But actually, it is a joyful thing because we're looking beyond the process of death and dying. We're looking towards fruitfulness and life. And when you sow in that way, that's how you can be a joyful giver. That's how you can sow your life joyfully in the people around you. And even if they disrespect you, even if they turn from you, even if they betray you, even though your best friend behaves like your worst enemy, God bless him or her or it or whatever you want to say about that. But the important thing is this, we're not doing it for them, we're doing it for the sake of the kingdom of God. That is how we can be fruitful and multiply through the 2020 vision. Amen and amen and amen and amen. All right, give Jesus praise. Put up there the hashtag for me again. Put up there the hashtag and put up there the information. So first thing you do, you go online, kt.org, and then you go to the Vision 2020, have a look at the information that's there, and then click on it. You just have to do a little bit of signing up, and I managed to do it, so anybody can do it, and, and, and say, yes, I'm in. I want to be fruitful for God. You're not making promises you won't be able to keep. You're relying on the Holy Spirit anyway, but it's bringing us together so that with one voice, one mind, one heart, one purpose, one vision, we can strive together for the sake of the gospel. That's what this church is all about. Let's pray.